Welcome back. Today we're honored to be joined by Judge Thomas Kleinschmidt. Judge Kleinschmidt uh, has been a judge uh, not only on the Superior Court, but was an Arizona Court of Appeals judge for a while. Uh, we've invited him to come down and chat with us today about um, HOA matters specifically and his experience over the years. Judge Kleinschmidt is now retired, but uh, I guess we're going to be covering a lot of really neat things. Some questions from some of our listeners include um, what to do in the event that uh, an owner doesn't resolve a situation, a violation of the documents. Um, attorney fees is a big one. Uh, how much is it going to cost to deal with a homeowner in a violation enforcement case? Um, and Judge Kleinschmidt is going to give us some uh, input on that, as well as a few other things. So we're really honored to have uh, Judge Kleinschmidt. Thank you for coming down. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. So would you mind just for the listener's sake giving us a brief uh, background on um, your experience on the bench? Uh, yeah, well, I um, actually I started out straight out of law school with a large uh, firm here in Phoenix doing general litigation work. Um, I went from there to, the, uh, to become an assistant federal public defender, and I served there for seven years. Um, I went from there to the Superior Court, where I was uh, for five years, and uh, then to the Arizona Court of Appeals in Phoenix, where I served for 18 years. So, and then after, uh, uh, after I retired about 15 years ago, I began uh, a mediation and arbitration practice, and uh, that's been from from about 2000 to pre the present. Very good. Out of that uh, vast experience, how many HOA cases do you think you've handled? You know, I can't remember. I know I had some HOA cases in the Superior Court and probably in the Court of Appeals, uh, but that's not where I, I had some, but I don't remember any of those in particular. Um, but I had a, 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 a lot of HOA mediations. I have had a lot of those in the last 10 years. Uh, I don't know how many for sure, but somewhere between 50 and 100. And uh, when you've handled those HOA mediation cases, um, do they have repeating themes that are similar to the contractual case, the contract cases you had in the Court of Appeals as well? Uh, yes. Yeah. Probably the single. Um, most common type of problem in HOA cases is the effort of uh, the uh, homeowners association to enforce the CCNRs to get the homeowner to uh, do what the CCNRs require them to do. That's the most common type. Sure. Um, so tell me, when you see these HOA cases coming across your docket, um, and as you've been mediating these cases, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, I think, is that it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard case because there's so much uh, emotion involved with them. It's kind of like domestic relations or child custody cases. People get uh, very upset, both, both the homeowner and the, and the people who are representing the or, or there for the association. Uh, there's, in most cases, by the time they get into court, into mediation, 
there's a long, long history of bad blood between the association and the homeowner. And it shows up in the emotion uh, that people bring to it. So that makes it hard, hard to settle. What usually becomes the driving force in trying to get a case settled? Uh, the fees, the, the, the cost to the parties of proceeding with the litigation. Um, most people, if they don't know it by the time they get to mediation, they certainly learn it in the mediation that it's going to cost them a lot if they do not uh, resolve their differences. So um, when things usually get to you, how much of attorney fees have you usually see? Well, it, it, it varies, uh, but um, I've seen uh, it, it can vary anywhere. I rarely see them under $5,000 per, per, per uh, side. But that's the lowest. Uh, I, I have seen them as high as $80,000, a combined fee of $80,000 over what was a very simple dispute. Wow. Yeah, uh, simple a, disputes as in like uh, weeds or? Uh, things showing o o over the common wall, things that shouldn't be showing over the common wall. And uh, in, in that was a, a case where the homeowners association was involved, and and the uh, ho one homeowner started out suing the other, and then sued the homeowners association. So three ways, split three ways, there was they ran up eighty thousand dollars. And that case had been going on for how long? Probably a couple of years. So, um, what advice can you give an association um, before they file a case? Uh, to help them understand what they're in for? Well, um, f first of all, I would say I, I, would, I would be very slow to file a, an action in the Superior Court uh, because you've got to understand that it's going to run up. It's going to start costing big money very fast. Uh, sometimes you have to do it. I recognize that. And sometimes the homeowner has to do it. Has to be the plaintiff needs to get something from the from the uh, needs to enforce something against the association. So w whether you're on which side you're whatever side you're on, uh, you've got to know that it's going to be very expensive. So I'd be slow to do it, uh, and I'd listen to my lawyer. Uh, what I've found, and particularly with individual homeowners is that um, they really, in a number of cases that I have had, they really only appreciate the problem uh, and the problems that they have with their case, both both on the facts and the law and the e and economics, uh, until they get to the mediation. Not every lawyer explains carefully um, what uh, what the situation is, and, and some lawyers are too easy or too quick to file suit, uh, even when the facts and the law aren't really very much in their favor. So um, if you could give advice then to a lawyer who's representing an association or a homeowner, what advice would you give the, the attorney? Well, I would, 
I would say you better explain to the client um, exactly where they stand on the law and on the facts uh, before you file a lawsuit and uh, then do that only as a last resort. Uh, and in that, when I talk about the law and the facts and acquainting the client with the law and the facts, uh, that also includes an estimate of what it's going to, a realistic estimate of what it's going to cost. From beginning to end, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and from what I heard in our prior conversations, you mentioned helping the client understand that they should try to offer an olive branch before filing a case because that helps the association appear reasonable and that they had no other choice but to file. Yeah, that's always... Uh, that's always a factor, especially when it comes time to awarding fees. If it comes down to the court awarding fees, uh, the judge will be very interested in knowing what what efforts were made to settle and who was reasonable and who was not. So let me give you an example of a situation. I'm going to make this up, but it happens all the time, and I see it all the time. Um, and those that are listening are probably going to go, oh, yeah, that's that's an example I've seen in my life as a manager or as a board member or as a homeowner even. Um, here's the example. Homeowner submits an application for approval to install pavers on the front of their lot. And the association's architect review committee approves the pavers that basically is, act as a driveway to the RV gate. And the association approves it and says, okay, listen, you can install the pavers, um, but you can't park on the pavers. You can only use it to access the RV gate and park your RV in the backyard of your lot. Well, after the pavers are installed, the owner starts parking on the pavers um, in violation of what the architecture review committee had, had told them not to do. The CCNRs are silent on whether you can park on the pavers or not, but the architecture guidelines just simply give the, the, the board and the architecture review committee discretion on interpretation of the CCNRs. And their interpretation is simply that you can't do it. What would you recommend that uh, happen in that kind of situation? Well, it sounds to me like, like uh, it, first of all, it would be better if the CCNRs were more specific on the point, but even if they're not, it, sound, it looks to me as if that's a, a, a reasonable application or interpretation uh, that the board, that the architectural committee has required. Um, what I need to know is, though, uh, I need to know more from the homeowner. Why, why does he insist on parking it where he does on the pavers? Is there some reason he cannot park it be Let's say he's got teenagers and they have four cars and they can't, they've got two cars in the garage, one car in the garage, two cars in the driveway, and they need a third, uh, a fourth place to park because they can't park on the street. Well, does he have to park? I, I, I would want to know if he has to park the, uh, the, the RV. Is it an RV that he's parking there? Yeah, he, was, he, he installed the pavers to do two things in his mind. One is to be able to park on the pavers because when he put the application in, it was a driveway, essentially. And he said, why would I install a driveway unless I could park on the driveway? Uh, and the um, he had an RV that he parked in the lot in his backyard. Yeah. Let me ask you this. D does the committee object to his parking cars on the pavers? 
Yes, parking. Not using the pave, using that as a driveway to put his RV in the backyard, but the association would object to him parking on the pavers. Parking any vehicle. Any vehicle. Yeah, that makes a difference to me. Um, the uh, I think that's a hard case. Uh, I really do. I don't think that the uh, the association in that situation uh, is uh, that calls for some kind of a compromise if, if one can be worked out I think so it's 50-50 shot at best yeah 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 he, he's got two there's no limit on the number of cars that you can have is there no no limit on the number of cars you can have but it just simply says you can't park on the street right well he's got to park them somewhere yeah yeah. Now, he may be able to make more room in the back. Sure. Or something, but I'd, tr I'd work very hard to work that out without filing a lawsuit. If a lawsuit were filed because the parties couldn't resolve it and the association ends up winning, what do you think is going to happen with a fee award then? Let's say, because at the end of the day, that fee request is going to be twenty to thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 probably. I would not think, I would not expect that the homeowners association would get all of their fees. I wouldn't expect that the homeowners association would get all of their fees. Uh, if they won, they'd get part of them, but but it would depend, of course, too, on on the homeowner's ability to pay. Sure. So let's talk about that a little bit. As you sat on the bench um, and were reviewing hundreds of these applications for attorney fees and requests for an award. What was your thought process? Well, uh, it, it would depend on the case, how, how, strong the, how, how strong the case for the winner was, um, what, uh, what the uh, financial ability of the loser was, uh, what, what the financial status of the winner is. Uh, it's it's a very it's an equitable uh, decision. You have to weigh all those different factors. So if the case was uh, if the case was won but it was weak, it wasn't a strong win. Uh, that's going to cut the fees down. If the loser doesn't have much money, that's going to cut the fees down. If the fees were uh, uh, unreasonable in the beginning, or unreasonable for what was involved, that would cut the fees down. Uh, I would think it's, uh, it is not the rule, or at least it was not when I was on the bench, that, that, uh, that the judges usually award all of the requested fees. That's, that's, that's the exception and not the rule. Now, I'm, I'm far removed from the bench now, but lawyers tell me that it's about the same. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would agree with that. The judges nowadays are th yeah. do the same thing they did then. Um, well, let's talk about a specific situation then where you have an association that is enforcing it, a clear violation in the CCNRs. I mean, it, there, there really is no question as to whether the owner can or can't do it. They just can't, and the judge is pretty convinced about that. But the problem is when it comes time to award fees, and, and oh, by the way, the, this particular owner in the case has filed all sorts of motions to drive fees up. 
they are representing themselves. They don't necessarily know the rules of civil procedure and um, candor of the court, and they just simply um, file anything and everything under the sun, and obviously that skyrockets the attorney fees for the association. This particular homeowner, because they didn't have money to represent an attorney, they obviously are in a financial pickle. I mean, they, this maybe the home that they live in is worth $150,000 at best, track home, and maybe they have a job making sixty to $100,000, uh, $60,000 to $70,000 a year combined income between the owner and their spouse. So you can see it's, you know, they don't have a lot of money. But they've caused the association to incur a lot more in attorney fees than they should have because of their filings. Comes time for the fee application request. Um, you, if you were the judge in this situation, can you walk me through what you're thinking at that point? Well, let me ask you this. Um, was there any merit at all? Was there any colorable merit to the, to the homeowner's claim? No. None? None. Basically, um, I'm going to make this situation up because um, uh, this is a very common situation. Let's say they paint their house an, a pink, bright pink color that causes homeowners in the community grief. Or these people use the, the pool um, and are very aggressive towards everyone in the community when they use the pool. Those are the kinds of examples that we're using where there really isn't an argument that they could have to defend the matter. The, uh, the, the <laughs> let me ask you something else about the homeowner. Is the homeowner um, an, an eccentric? And when I say eccentric, I mean are they a little a little bit off? Yes, because <laughs> that's usually what happens when you get some of these propers. Yeah, it off it it often happens. That's true. Uh, there there are. Uh, makes it very difficult. Uh, I think that there would be an award of fees in that case, uh, but it would be uh, very much tempered by the income and the and the ability to pay. So, if you were faced, let's say this was a um, a year and a half case where the homeowner had filed over twenty five motions in the case that the association had to respond to, and they're asking you for. Seventy thousand dollars in attorney fees, and there's an income of eight eighty thousand, and and no other assets. Well, maybe, maybe um, uh, it's uh, not necessary. And sometimes these folks are unemployed or on social security or disability. Yeah, uh, let me ask you this: in this case, where there's maybe eighty thousand, any does the homeowner have any children? No. Okay. Uh, and well, uh, let me ask you a question. Yeah. When you're considering fee applications, do you as a judge, um, as you're looking through the pleadings, you're looking for this, but if it's never provided, do you um, research to determine whether there's kids and what their income would be and you know, all of those factors? Yeah, I would want to know those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would. You'd, you'd have some kind of a submission on that point or ask for one. Um, so uh, it, it, you've got an eccentric homeowner. Uh, are they so eccentric that they're unbalanced? <laughs> well, potentially, <laughs> yeah. 
I probably yeah. wouldn't come out and say that to a judge in the courtroom, but no. I think it's any everybody really recognizes that when the the homeowner screams and shouts <laughs> that they're they're unbalanced. Well, um, you know, if it's merely, uh, uh, let me say this: if the if the eccentricity goes to the point of being uh, uh, an unbalanced person, that would reduce the fees awardable, in, to my view, at least in my thinking it would, it, because uh, for some reason or another they really can't help their, help, they're not totally responsible for their behavior. But no, the <coughs> uh, it's a nightmare when you get an eccentric homeowner. Uh, and, and I might say occasionally we get the Eccentric Homeowners Association which for some reason or other is just adamant uh, about their position and to the point of being unreasonable. So it cuts both ways, but we're all familiar with the eccentric homeowner. Um, so you got 80,000, uh, he's got an income, how much are your fees again? $80,000. And he's got an income of what, 70? At best, we're thinking some. Well, again, this is I'm making this up as I go. Let's just say somewhere between thirty and sixty, seventy thousand dollars at best. And sometimes, keep in mind, sometimes these, the, especially the eccentric ones, don't have a job. Period. They're on disability or government assistance. Well, I would give if they were if they had no money and they were on government assistance, I would give a token. It would just be a token. Um, a fourth, about a fourth of the eighty grand. Would you consider that a token, or even uh, less than that? Uh, that would be the tops. Hmm. That would be the tops. I, I know it's an unfair situation, but there's just no way to solve it. So when an attorney for the HOA tells you, Your Honor, look, you understand, you as the judge, you already know that all of these motions were pretty much borderline vexatious or frivolous. Um, but that when the when the attorney tells you, Your Honor, you need to give us all the fees because if you don't, then all the other homeowners are going to have to absorb the cost, and they didn't do anything to bring this on. No, I realize that. What what's what's your take on that? Is that a persuasive argument for you? Yeah, it's a persuasive argument. It's the it was it's the reason I would award some fees, but to award eighty thousand dollars in fees. Um, You'll never get paid anyway. Um, I would, I, I, I would, uh, I would think it's better to award something that that you might be able to collect than the entire than an award of the entire amount. It's always a difficult question. Sure. Um, so here's another question for you then. Leading, uh, so you have the, we discussed the attorney fees issue, which is always an issue in these HOA matters. Um, but you know, sometimes we get um, a, a homeowner who refuses to cure the violation even after judge tells them to. So, what do we do then? What What's your take on that? Well, you have to have a you have to have a show cause hearing to uh, to uh, enforce the order. And you have to. The judge has to decide. Has to know why they have not complied, um, and just hear from both sides on that point. 
But let's assume that um, there is no good reason uh, for the uh, non-compliance. And if there isn't, uh, then the judge has a, a, a number of options. One is to um, simply increase or, or pay or, 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 or impose a fine as a penalty for a failure to comply. And you can, you can make that a, a progressive fine that for every day, week, or month uh, that there is no compliance, the fine is increased. Uh, the real problem becomes what, becomes what happens when the, uh, the person is non-compliant with the court's order but has no money. Yeah. That's, that's a harder problem. And um, you cannot put someone in jail because they do not have money. Um, but you could, uh, the court's got to enforce its order somehow. So the, as a very last resort, uh, they could put someone, uh, the, the judge could incarcerate someone for failing to uh, obey a, an injunctive order. You know, that's a tough situation. I think for us, one of the things we like to do when it comes to these contempt problems, when an owner's not complying with an or with a judge's order, is to give the judge an easy out. And one of those is, Your Honor, let us, under your contempt powers, cure the violation ourselves, and then charge that cost back to the owner as an assessment. So that if they don't pay it, the association can exercise its foreclosure rights. What do you think about that? That. Yeah, I think that's a that, that's a a very viable solution. Um, the uh, do you use that often? Yeah. Uh, you know, contempt comes up occasionally, maybe once or twice a year. We have a couple of them pending right now for us, at least uh, for me. And usually, if I get them in front of a judge on a contempt order, the judge has been pretty good about getting them to cure the violation, but. I've had a handful of times where, and it seems like lately, uh, more and more people seem to ignore judges' orders. Um, I've been doing this a lot more lately than I, I did maybe a decade ago. Do you, let me ask you this. Do you find that these people who do not obey the order fall into that uh, category of the extremely eccentric? No, no. It's a mixed bag. Some of them just try to ignore the problem and and put their head in the sand and think that if it they just close their eyes it goes away uh, some of them are that way yeah yeah in in that situation the judge is much more apt to to take a strong strong stance and prescribe a pretty uh, harsh har a more harsh remedy than you would if they're um, if they fall into that extremely eccentric category um, with the eccentric homeowners category, um, if you were on the bench and uh, you know in your heart of hearts that this particular owner is <coughs> flat out crazy, <laughs> let's yeah. just say, let's just use the word, um, do you feel like you can even find contempt if you don't feel like they're, they have a culpable mental state to comply? Because isn't it true then that in order to find somebody in contempt, you have to deem that they are intentionally yeah. violating the order? Yeah. Yeah, that's that presents a real problem if they're if they're that eccentric. 
You know, there is another factor, though, and this applies, I find this applies to both sides, homeowners associations and homeowners. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and the mediator hates to hear it. And that is, they'll say, but it's a matter of principle. And it's not that principle is not important. It's that these problems, that these particular kinds of problems don't often don't involve important principles. Uh, people have their, people are confusing their point of view with a principle. But we're not talking about fundamental, often not talking about fundamental principles. And it gets very hard to get people past that point. They, they have, they've been living with the case for a long time. They think they're right. And uh, so they, uh, they start to couch things in, in, in terms of principle or, or uh, uh, and it's I, I work I have to work hard to dissuade them that this really is not a matter of, of fundamental principle it's it's something to look at uh, and consider the economics of it you know it's uh, so from my from your perspective then, you have to consider the economics and you recognize at least that an association when there's a clear violation the board may be stuck between a rock and a hard place yeah. because you know you got maybe have a home other homeowners that are complaining about an owner that isn't um, co complying with the declaration of covenants conditions and restrictions and threatening to sue the association unless the association does something about it and so the association ends up having to sue because they can't right. resolve it and then they end up eating a little bit of their attorney fees assuming they don't settle it and they win the case. Yeah, you know what I would suggest, Clint, is um, a lot of these is getting people to a, to a mediation before, before a um, lawsuit's filed. Uh, you might be able to we don't. I don't settle every case, but we settle most of them. I settle most of them, and if you, it usually takes all day. You know, in the homeowners association cases, they go on and on and on. Uh, but uh, it's a lot. It, it, it would save a lot of grief if you got everybody together, and before the lawsuit was filed. Do you ever do that? I don't know. Sure. Do you? Yeah, we do. Yeah, because see, the ones that I've seen. I don't think I've ever had one that wasn't in litigation. Yeah, usually if we can get it to mediation, we'll either agree in mediation, and if we can't, we try to agree to go to an arbitrator and do binding arbitration yeah. mm -hmm. so we don't have to go to the court. Mm -hmm. um, but when we do go to the court, you know, most of my cases, we try to get opposing counsel to agree to do mediation sooner rather than later. Um, but anyways, thank you so much for your comments and feedback. I really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks again. Hope it's helpful.